Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Soon after Poland's first post-communist freely elected prime minister took office in 1990, the Polish and U.S. spy agencies began working together, and Polish operatives came to the United States for training. John Pomfret, former Eastern Europe and Beijing bureau chief of the Washington Post, tells the complicated story of the long and twisted Polish-U.S. intelligence relationship in his latest book, From Warsaw with Love, Polish Spies, the CIA, and the Forging of an Unlikely Alliance. It's published by Henry Holt, and it brings John Pomfret to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Leonard. It's oh, great to be here. It's a fascinating book, uh, and you begin it. Uh, in the early 1980s, during the last years of the Cold War, when a salesman turned Polish spy named Marian Zakarski led the FBI on a cat and mouse chase for months in Los Angeles. Kind of sounds a bit like John le Carré. He was uh, a salesman who seems to have become a spy through circumstances. Yeah, basically, he was an accidental agent. He was based in Los Angeles, and the Poles were very were masters at industrial espionage. And once they realized that he was selling machine tool equipment in Los Angeles, they tasked him with coming to America and stealing American lathe technology. And then <laughs> as luck would have it, he bumped into a, a, an engineer from Hughes Aircraft who had and was working on all sorts of classified military uh, missions. Like stealth and technology. It's like exactly. The, the, the early iteration of stealth technology. And so instead of helping Poland build a better lathe, he stole a massive amount of our military secrets that then were funneled directly to the KGB. And the estimate is they saved the Russians hundreds of millions of dollars in developing countermeasures. How long was he able to operate before U.S. law enforcement realized what he was doing and he was finally captured? Well, the amazing thing, about, about almost four years but the amazing thing was he was being trailed by the FBI for some 200 days as they conducted the investigation while he was in the process of funneling secret documents from Los Angeles to the Chicago consulate and often from Los Angeles straight straight to straight to Europe. Why four years? Uh, I, I realize part of one of the, one of the amusing moments in the story is that he was uh, trained in spycraft back in Poland, and he was taught how to get rid of a tail uh, in w w as he was walking. Uh, of course, he was in L.A., so that was a little more difficult. Right. So, yeah, some, of, some, some, of the, um, some of the training was not very appropriate to the American situation, and that was a, an example of one of them. So he was, uh, but it took four years. Um, why so long? Well, there were... He only was busted once um, a Polish uh, agent began to give information to the CIA that we that the Poles had an operative in based in, in Los Angeles. That was the only way we, we found out about it. And the CIA passed that information to the FBI and the FBI then found him and began to tail him. And, and they finally only busted him because they found his source at Hughes Aircraft and interrogated him. At which point he then basically acknowledges that he was working for Polish intelligence and then the case unravels and, and the FBI arrests him and, and then he's prosecuted and sentenced to life in prison. How is his Zakarski story connected to the events that followed? So the CIA officer who provided the FBI with the tip 
was really interested in what Saharsky was doing once the court case happened. He got the case files. And he was incredibly impressed with Saharsky's tradecraft because you know, Saharsky was basically a knock. He's a non-official cover. And so there was he didn't have diplomatic immunity. He was out there all by himself in Los Angeles. The Poles didn't have a consulate on the West Coast. He had to bring that the, the documents to the Polish consulate on, in Chicago, flying in airplanes. And he suborned incredibly well this American who worked for Hughes Aircraft, William Bell. And so the, this American CIA officer, John Palovich, was really enamored with Zaharsky's tradecraft. And he basically made a promise to himself that should the opportunity arise, he really wanted to work with the Poles and not against them because they were, they were just so darn good. And he accompanied Mr. Zuchowski to Berlin in 1985 for a prisoner exchange. Right, right. Yeah, at the Glenitsky Bridge, the sort of the famous Bridge of Spies. The Zuchowski was the, uh, sorry, Palovich was the CIA representative to that exchange. But that was and still, then, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, well, that, and, and, and that, that was kind of, you know, that was still in the middle of the Cold War. Yeah, that uh, in five years before the final dissolution of the Soviet Union in December 1991. But uh, even then, wasn't the Warsaw Pact still in effect? The Warsaw Pact was still in effect. And so the American, so Palovich is the one, the officer who then in 1990, while the Warsaw Pact is still in effect, while there are tens of thousands of Soviet troops still on Polish soil, he reaches out to the Poles and says, hey, guys, maybe it's time we end our war between each other and begin to work together. Yeah, that was March 1st, 1990, when he rang the bell at the Polish embassy in Lisbon, of all places. Right. Uh, right. They, they chose Lisbon because the Portuguese counterintelligence was considered relatively sleepy, so they could conduct their skullduggery without anyone prying into it. So when did cooperation between Polish and U.S. intelligence actually begin? Um, How soon after uh, activists by solidarity uh, wound up uh, winning the the new elections and, and, and Lech Wałęsa became president of Poland? So the cooperation actually became it began before Valencia was president, was elected president. But solidarity, it was still a solidarity government. So in March 1990, Palovich goes into the embassy in Lisbon. There's a meeting in Warsaw, a secret meeting between the CIA, a delegation of five CIA officers in Warsaw in, 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 in July, late June and July of that year. And the Americans immediately begin to train uh, Polish on counterintelligence operations. In addition, um, they actually begin to set up a Polish special forces group um, as well. And then in October um, of 1990, an operation happens in Iraq mm. after Saddam's invasion of Iraq, where, where the Poles dispatch an intelligence officer to Iraq to save, basically, to get six Americans, very important Americans, out of Iraq secretly. So Polish operatives came to the United States for training with the U.S., and the U.S. provided millions of dollars in cash and equipment. The people we were dealing with at that time, the Polish intelligence, they were all were hadn't they all worked for the communist government? Yeah, they were all. So communists. It was just easy the, for them to just switch over. They can. They can basically. They considered themselves professionals, and they're thinking about kind of why they wanted to work for America. So it was. It was, it was a, 
you know, an, an interesting kind of motivation. One, they were Leninists. They were schooled in power. And they basically their conclusion was if Poland didn't lean towards Moscow, it had to lean towards the United States. It couldn't be given its geographic position kind of a Finland, right? Mm-hmm. It just, it was impossible. It had to have an, a main and big ally. And as, as they saw that the Russians were deep in their problems, they realized they needed to, to, you know, to reach out to the Americans. And the second reason, of course, is that as Poland was changing political politically, these ex-communists needed to, to basically prove their loyalty to the new solidarity government. And what better way to do it than by working with the United States and showing that they could work with America. How How soon uh, after this did Poland join NATO? 1999. So this is nine years later. But the the story you were about to tell uh, is something that you learned in 1994 when you were stationed in Warsaw as the Washington Post Bureau Chief of Eastern Europe. You you heard a rumor that Polish spies had rescued six Americans from Saddam Hussein's forces in 1990. Yeah. Did somebody just say, hey— you're with the Washington Post. Let me tell you the story. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. A, I don't really think it was a planned leak. It was just scuttlebutt amongst some of the uh, sort of contacts I had in the diplomatic community. Actually, the first first person to tell me this was actually a French diplomat. And then we just began scratching around slowly but surely. And somebody suggested talking to Polish engineering companies because the Poles were very involved in a lot of doing a lot of projects, infrastructure projects in Iraq. And they said, why don't you talk to them? Because that would be the natural place where the Poles would embed an, an intelligence officer if he needed to do an operation in Iraq. And there were basically... 13 of them. We interviewed 12 and everyone thought we were nuts. And then we got to the 13th and that manager, the 13th said, yeah, you know, we had this crazy guy named Eugeniusz and he told us this nutty story and we never believed him. And anyway, Eugeniusz is retired. And, and so we then found Eugeniusz in a Western Polish city. And we then, he then kind of told the whole story of, yeah, I helped this Polish spy save all these Americans. The Polish and spy from, was Gromek Czempinski. Who yeah, Gromek Czempinski, fam- yeah. He'd been a famous communist-era spy. Exactly. He was very successful. He was kind of a Tom Selleck lookalike, very attractive, very smooth, very great sense of humor. And he had been an operative, operative for Poland, both in Chicago, where he was expelled, but then he worked at length for Poland in Geneva, but also around the world on operations for the communist government. And here he was switching hats, working for us. And he was sent, as we said, to Iraq in uh, October 1990 to save six American intelligence and military officers who'd been stuck in Baghdad after Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. That sounds very dangerous. It was. It was. It was. Um, I because mean, the, the U.S. officers trapped in Iraq had intelligence that could ruin Operation Desert Storm if it was. Yeah. One of one of them, John Feely, was on the he was a major at the time. He was on the staff of, of General Norman Schwarzkopf and he was on the intelligence staff. And he'd been tasked at the time with with before this was even before Saddam invaded Kuwait. He was part of a group of officers who were wargaming a scenario in which Saddam invaded Kuwait. And what would the U.S. do should that happen? So in his head, he knew all the countermeasures that were being considered by uh, Schwarzkopf and the Central Command. And so if, and the concern was if he fell into the hands of the Iraqi intelligence agencies, they'd stick his feet in the 
in a, in a, in a, in a bathtub of acid, he'd mm. be, he'd be singing. So they needed him to get him out and the other five as well. And a Polish spy was a particularly good fit for such an operation? Well, the Poles had some 2,000 workers in Iraq at the time, and they were in, in the process of getting them out as the tension rose and then the West figured out how to counter the invasion. And so because they were moving people out, uh, it didn't look funny for somebody to be driving six quote unquote, Polish officer, Polish workers out of Iraq. So they so Chempinski in his luggage flying down into Baghdad brought six Polish workers overalls and six fake Polish passports that they gave to the Americans as then and then in the process, he then told them what he was going to do, which was driving them north uh, out of uh, Iraq into Turkey. You write that what happened to the woman who he romanced to acquire those things is uncertain. So yeah. you, you still don't know the whole story. Yeah, we, I still don't know the whole story. And, and, uh, and I don't even think in some cases the polls do, because coming into Iraq, Iraq had a basically under Iraqi law. Then if you had a passport, you had to get an exit visa, not just a visa to come to Iraq. You also had to get a visa to leave Iraq because they were worried about this type of operation. And so Chempinski gets in touch with an Iraqi woman apparently romances her, and she then provides him with the six exit visas into these fake passports, which basically allowed these guys to leave the country. But once the operation ends, it's given the Iraqi computer system, it would have been very easy to look to see who was involved in granting these six officers the, the exit visas. Mm -hmm. and, and, and she had been a source for Polish intelligence in the past, but then after this operation, she disappears completely. And no one even knows what happened to her. Is this the operation that was called Operation Friendly Saddam? Operation Friendly Saddam. That's what it was named by the <laughs> That's Poles. an odd name. Friendly it is. Saddam. I mean, in other words, being friendly to Saddam helps you get stuff done. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, you know, they, they had other names for them, but they were a little bit too scatological. So they, 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 they conned mm -hmm. onto this one later on. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is John Pomfret, P-O-M-F-R-E-T. His latest book, From Warsaw with Love, Polish Spies, the CIA, and the Forging of an Unlikely Alliance, published by Henry Holt. So uh, is it too soon to ask you where the title of the book comes from? Well, it was basically um, because it was, it's something it, you dug it, up in 1995. No, I, this is um, kind of my my dad liked the title. He was a big James Bond fan, and so we just you know he, he was he was a big advocate of of this idea as a title, and, and uh, Holt was was willing to let me be a little tongue tongue in cheek mm -hmm. about about the whole thing. So that's it. Basically, my pop who passed away a year ago or so. Um, uh, was was a big fan of the title, and, and mm -hmm. that, that's where it came from. Yeah. So the success of Operation Friendly Saddam led to a number of, of new joint operations across the globe. Yeah, Poland was extremely useful to the United States, especially in those early years when it wasn't part of NATO, it wasn't recognized as an American ally. It was in this sort of inner zone between us and the Russians. 
And their knowledge of what was happening in Russia was very deep and extremely useful to the America, Americans, especially as there was these senses that the collapse of the Soviet Union could be violent or loose nukes, how to get them out of, you know, sort of help the Russians maintain their nuclear stockpile, not let uh, uh, Russian or Ukrainian in several instances, physicists go overseas to work with quote unquote rogue regimes to give them information. And in addition to that, the Poles had embassies across the world in nations where Americans had a great dif difficulty operating. So North Korea, Cuba, parts of Angola, uh, Iran and other places like that. And so the Americans basically tapped into the Polish diplomatic network using Polish spies to conduct operations on behalf of the United States. In fact, the Poles began taking American-made intelligence equipment to their embassy in North Korea. Right, exactly. Because they had a large compound there. Because they were, they, you know, in the past, they were socialist brothers. They, they'd actually been part of the whole committee that monitored the ceasefire at the end of the Korean War on the side of the the North Koreans. So they were deeply embedded as, as much as the, any Western country could be in, uh, in, 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 in North Korea. So they were extremely useful there and also very useful in Iran as well. And so the Operation Friendly Saddam led to a number of joint operations across the globe. Bill Norville, who was the CIA station chief in Warsaw at the time, said there was literally nothing they wouldn't do to support us. Well, why were the Poles so eager to work with the CIA? Uh, had they been as eager to work with the Soviet Union? No, they hadn't, actually. I mean, on the military intelligence side, they had been. But in civilian intelligence, which was which which were these these characters, they actually had been they, they maintained a certain sense of separatist, separatist, separateness from the KGB. But with the Americans, they were all in. And there were several reasons. First, the Polish government, very relatively early in the 1990s, basically comes to the conclusion that they needed to be allowed into NATO. And intelligence was their calling card because the Polish army wasn't that big. It was still considered relatively penetrated by the Soviets. But their civilian intelligence agency was not. So and the calling and the calling card that they played to justify their entry into NATO was was the fact that they were really good intelligence professionals. So were they the first of the former Soviet satellite states in Eastern Europe to join NATO? Because a whole a number of them did pretty much around that time. Yeah. So in 1999, Poland and the Czech Republic and Hungary entered NATO. They were the first three. But of those three, the Poles led everybody in. I mean, the Czech Republic, it was a nice country, but they, they dismantled their intelligence agency. And the Hungarians were more eager to be of help in, in military than in intelligence. But the Poles really used an intelligence as, 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 like I said, their calling card to get into NATO. And they led those other two countries in. And are they more active in NATO these days? For example, uh, President Biden has announced that he's sending 3,000 more troops to Poland now uh, in light of what's going on with Ukraine? Yeah, they're, they're significantly more active in NATO than the other uh, recent entrants. They're, they're extremely focused on their NATO membership as, as basically the, the foundation of their security. Uh, and, you know, I mean, Biden's sending 3,000 more Americans into, into Poland. Their current estimate about the number of Americans in Poland 
on paper, it's about 4,000, but my, my understanding, it's closer to 11,000 because there's a lot of troops rotating in and out, both Navy, Air Force, and Army. Uh, and there's almost a division of American troops in Poland now as we speak. And it's later we'll, very, get, we'll, later we'll it, get to the politics of contemporary Poland, which has changed definitely. a bit. Yes. But, but uh, Poland has participated, despite misgivings, in a number of American activities, including, uh, can we call them the debacles in Afghanistan and, and the second Iraq war? Yes, yes. They were very, I mean, they were eager. And the interesting thing is some of those decisions were made again by ex-communist Polish politicians, who in 1995, the Poles elected a, an ex-communist president, uh, Alexander Krasniewski, and Leszek Miller, who's also an ex-communist, became a premier, the premier soon after. And they were very concerned with proving to America that ex-communists could be loyal to the United States as an ally. Mm. And so anything the Americans asked them to do, uh, even some morally questionable activities, these guys were willing to do because basically they felt almost obligated to show that they were not no longer communist and they could embrace the, the you know, basically as when, what, at one point, Krasniewski said about George W. Bush, he said, if George W. Bush believes it, I believe it too. And so they were involved in, in from the early days in the operation to unseat Saddam Hussein, their special forces, which had been trained by the CIA, worked with our Delta Force and our SEAL teams to in the first in the beginnings of the Gulf War. And then they were given a whole sector of Iraq to manage uh, during the occupation. Didn't a CIA director once describe the relationship, the intelligence cooperation between Poland and the U.S. as, quote, one of the two foremost intelligence relationships that the United States has ever had? Yes, that was in 2001 when George Tenet, wrote a letter to his Polish counterpart on the eve of his Polish counterpart's retirement, a fellow named Bogdan Libera, in which he made that statement. And, you know, Tenet is, was known for exaggeration, but nonetheless, I think it's significant that between these two intelligence agencies, the Americans really, really favored the Poles and were incredibly impressed and used them all over the world. What was the other foremost intelligence relationship? Do we know? My assumption, that would be the British. Uh-huh. But, but this is also in a situation where if you think around the world, the Americans have had close contact and, and coordination with the Israelis, of course, and the Australians. So nonetheless, it's, it's still pretty extraordinary that the Poles would be considered the second. Now, a lot of this, the story that you tell here is based on your reporting. You, you were stationed in Warsaw for a time and also in Beijing. Um, but how much of it has been declassified? From our side, nothing, basically. From the Polish side, a significant amount, ending in 1990. But nonetheless, the run-up, Palovich's trip to the Lisbon embassy, the initial talks at in Lisbon that happened later on, and then the secret meeting in Warsaw, that's all, all notes about that. Not all of it, but a significant quantity of notes about that have been declassified. And actually, just in the last couple of weeks, they've been uh, translated and now they're posted at the Wilson Institute's uh, on the Wilson Institute's website. For, so, you know, readers can go take a look at those. What about the CIA's Black Side program? Uh, 
that held suspected terrorists in Poland after 9-11. Uh, is, is that something that has been revealed or is this something that you had to come, you had to discover on your own? So that was, that was first reported by the Washington Post and a priest in, uh, several years after um, that operation ended. So, but that's all been, that's all been, a lot of it's been revealed in the press. I added to that story by interviewing Kwasz President Kwasniewski, the ex-president Kwasniewski, who told me literally the date and the time when he met George W. Bush, when George W. Bush asked him to house these terrorist suspects on Polish soil so Americans could interrogate them. But um, the Poles had certain th things that they wanted to the Americans to adhere to. And, right. we, and we just ignored that? We ignored it. We basically created a little piece of America on the grounds of the Polish intelligence a training center out in the lake country in western Poland, uh, eastern Poland, excuse me. And uh, the Poles basically at a certain point asked the Americans to sign a memorandum of understanding over the treatment of these prisoners. And the CIA declined to, to sign the document. And now we know later on that torture was happening. People were being waterboarded there. People were being having their heads slammed up against the wall. There were mock executions and all sorts of nastiness was happening. These the same people who wound up in Guantanamo or? Yes, whole other yes. Group? So Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's considered the architect of the 9-11 attack, was waterboarded mm -hmm. more than 100 times on Polish soil. And he's in Guantanamo. Several others as well. Um, were taken there. So the waterboarding was a violation of an agreement the United States had made with Poland. Well, no, the, the Poles wanted the Americans to sign an agreement basically promising to treat their prisoners well, but the Americans declined to, to sign the agreement and still the Poles let the Americans have the operation to continue. But didn't Polish officials say that they were uncomfortable with the fact that the United States had barred them from the villa where this was taking place, the two-story yes. villa on the campus of an intelligence training base in Poland? Yes, they were throughout, they were uncomfortable with it, but they allowed it to happen. And then they allowed it to continue on, even though they had no access to the building. At a certain point, Kwasniewski, the president, goes to Bush and says, George, it's time to roll this thing up. At which point the Americans then relatively slowly take actions to, to, to shut down the villa. In all, the estimate is about 11 terrorist suspects uh, were cycled through that Polish facility, uh, and many of, many of which were subjected to, uh, quote unquote, enhanced interrogation techniques, which is, an, I think, another way of saying torture. Senior Polish officials told you they believed the CIA when it promised to keep secret Poland's participation in the black sites. Right. And so this was a problem. So the Poles felt and understood. Obviously, it's not that, a secret. It's in your book. <laughs> right. It's not a secret anymore. It was reported widely, widely in the Western press. And so when this all comes out, the Poles really feel like, and specifically at the highest levels of the Polish government, they were doing their best to be good allies of America. And now the Americans are leaking and the Poles are left basically holding the bag. And uh, President George W. Bush acknowledged the existence of secret overseas prison, prisons in a speech on September 6, 2006. Yeah. Uh, were Poland's leaders worried that, that uh, their, their site would be uncovered? Yeah, they were. And they, I mean, when, when, when Bush made that speech, they, the Americans didn't give the Poles any warning that he was going to make a statement like that. So they were left 
trying to figure out, you know, because at the time already fingers were pointing at Poland and Romania and Morocco and other countries, Thailand, uh, about this. And the Poles really felt kind of left out because the Americans didn't tell them their thinking and didn't give them any fair warning about Bush's speech. In 2014, didn't the European Court of Human Rights order Poland to pay two former detainees 100,000 euros each? Yes. But the the Poles, not the United States? Right, because they were in, they were being interrogated on Polish soil. And so these two uh, individuals took cases against the, uh, at the European Court of Justice, basically saying that their human rights, their civil rights had been violated in Poland and the court ruled on their in their favor. And Poland was given a small fine. But nonetheless, it's it's it was a significant case. Well, 100,000 euros. I don't want to have to pay that much. No. <laughs> You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. with John Pomfret. I want to let you know that anyone who signs up to become a member of WBAI with a contribution of $75 or more will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing. From Warsaw with Love, Polish Spies, the CIA, and the Forging of an Unlikely Alliance, published by Holt, Henry Holt. You can participate in this offer by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero during today's show, and don't forget to make that seventy-five dollar donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. Let's get back to the story. Uh, we are now in nineteen ninety-seven when commandos from Poland's special operations unit helped round up Slavko Dokmanovich, who'd been indicted at The Hague for the 1991 massacre of 260 wounded Croats in the former Yugoslavia. Right. Yeah, so GROM, which which is the special operations unit trained by the CIA, was deployed to, in the the fallout of the Yugoslav, the collapse of Yugoslavia. And they were based in uh, northern, in Croatia. Uh, And they came up with the idea, along with an American there who was working for the UN, to begin arresting war criminals. And they arrested in this very well thought out, well planned operation, one of the first, in fact, the first Serbian war criminal to be arrested, Slavko Dukmanovic. In this stellar operation in 1997, while, as, as Poland um, was in the, process of, in the process of trying to apply for NATO membership. Now, why was this in the best interest of the United States? Because of NATO? So Clinton, President Clinton, who was the president at the time, was very keen on rounding up war criminals. He was he thought it was, you know, because, you know, Yugoslavia collapsed. 
they, there was a the the committee, uh, the organization to prosecute war crimes was set up at The Hague. And Clinton was very uh, impressed that the polls would would carry out such an operation. And it 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 was in line with U.S. policy. The Americans were very engaged in ending the war and they believe in Yugoslavia and they believe an important aspect of ending the war was beginning to remove these war criminals from the theater. So when the polls did this, uh, Clinton was very impressed. However, the Pentagon, which had deployed troops in into Bosnia and into parts of Croatia, was not happy about this because they felt they were sort of it made them lose face, if you will, because, you know, the Americans had tens of thousands of soldiers in 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 Bosnia and they had they they never even arrested one war, war criminal. But the, the, the polls had, you know, a, a squad of 50 and they'd already arrest, arrested the first one. You've mentioned that two weeks after his the capture of Slavko Dokmanovic, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary were invited uh, into NATO, but it, that didn't become official for another two years. Why? Right. It, they're basically, well, starting in the mid-90s, but 97 was the formal invitation, there was a lot of work being done in trying to make the Polish army, the Czech army, and the Hungarian army interoperable with NATO forces, right? And you know, there's a weaponry issue. There's military doctrine issues. There's also, and there's also, you know, the the demands that NATO had that the Ministry of Defense in these countries had did not could not be run by a military officer, which historically it was, but had to be run by a civilian. Um, and the whole idea of civilian control of the military was very important, which actually wasn't part of the whole makeup of the Warsaw Pact armies. And so there was that. And the other issue was uh, underneath the table was the weeding out of Soviet spies or Russian spies by that time within the militaries of these countries as well. So it it was a process. How much of the story you tell is a tale of moral ambiguity in which right and wrong aren't always distinguishable? I think a lot of it is. And sort of it's from my perspective, it was one of the most intriguing parts of the tale because from the start, you have these, you know, you have these ex-communists who are trying to find their way in a new Poland, who have skills, uh, and then kind of reach out to the United States, and then my Americans reach out to them. The Americans kind of in, are impressed by their trade craft. The Americans don't really care so much about their ideology because they're just good at their jobs. And the Polish government at the time, which is trying to kind of find its way in, in the new world, relies on these guys ex- extraordinarily, um, not only to protect Poland's future and, and the Polish state, but also to help really craft a new Polish foreign policy. And then time passes and the Americans come back to the polls and come back to actually ex-communist politicians and say, hey, we need you to work for us to, to be involved in very morally questionable and very, very morally questionable enterprise, which is housing, you know, opening a black site on your on your territory. But we'll do it because we're allies and you need us and we need you. So let's work something out. And the polls agreeing to do this again, because they feel the necessity of proving their loyalty to America, even though. Right. <laughs> and, and then it sort of raises the issue from from the Polish side. How much do we have to prove to you that we are you know, a good ally? Um, and when are you going to accept us as such? Or are you still going to be asking us for more and more and more? 
Well, what role? So I think the the moral ambiguity part of the story, I think, is it's actually its most attractive part. What role did the Polish spies play in the hunt for Osama bin Laden? So a Polish spy, he's actually a Polish agent by the time because he was fired by Polish intelligence. The Polish intelligence went through a vetting process in the late 80s and early 90s to get rid of people who the Solidarity government might feel were objectionable. And they fired this one guy named Alexander Makovsky, not because he was particularly objectionable, but because he was he, from his overseas base as the Polish station chief in Rome, he, he, he fought very strongly and very successfully against Solidarity's fundraising efforts overseas during the 1980s. But he always was he always you know, he was you know trained an excellent intelligence officer. And so after he was forced out of the services, the Polish services, the Polish services go back to him and employ him not as an officer, but as an agent of the Polish services. So he's involved in all sorts of things like helping MI6 um, uh, uh, seize a cache of weapons that were moving into Northern Ireland. And he's also working in Afghanistan as well. And in Afghanistan, he becomes very close to the northern to people who ultimately became part of the Northern Alliance, who passed him all sorts of very good information about the activities of this character named Osama bin Laden, well before the Americans wanted him captured. And he began funneling this information through the, the through Warsaw, through the station chief's office in Warsaw to the United States. The Americans gave him some money to support his intelligence gathering operations. He provided them with a lot of very good, what turned out to be a lot of very good information about Osama bin Laden, but it was ultimately never acted on, partially because the CIA couldn't confirm the relation, his information from another source. It was just a single source information. So they were great tips, but the CIA could never trust it. But it turns out in the end that his information was true. At a certain point, he actually had identified where Osama was for a period of time um, and suggested strongly that the CIA try to figure out how to grab him then. This was after the, the, um, the bombing of the, the USS Cole in Yemen. Um, but the CIA never acted on it because they were worried that it was, it was single source information. Well, eventually, uh, Osama was found and he was killed. Right. Uh, uh, but Poland was not involved in that final operation? No, Poland was not involved. From, from all that I've gathered, it was not involved in that final operation. Polish intelligence continued to help the United States into the mid-2000s. Now, before we get into some more of the things that they did, um, weren't governments changing in Poland? Did it matter whether the government leaned a bit further to the left or further to the right? No, and in, in this instance, it didn't. I mean, at a certain point in the mid in the in the 90s, basically from I think 92 to 98, uh, Poland only had one ambassador while uh, in, in in Washington who was tasked with one job, which was to get Poland to NATO, and even though Poland at that time had a leftist government that had a rightist government that had a centrist government and kind of bounced all over the, the, the sort of like a ping pong, um, all over the political spectrum. But basically with this one ambassador in Washington, Jerzy Kosminski, they relied on him to get Poland to NATO. And even as Poland kind of took this far right tilt in the 2000s with a sort of almost proto-Catholic populist government, um, it maintained its uh, a huge commitment to the U.S. alliance. But then uh, there are changes on the U.S. side as well. For example, right. 
Donald Trump became president of the United States. And according to John Bolton, his national security advisor, didn't Trump say he didn't understand why the U.S. even needs allies? Right. So basically, Trump had was a no believer. He was a real America firster. He really believed that the United States was so exceptional that we didn't need allies. And so at a certain point, he, he actually kind of cozied up to the polls, not so much because he liked Poland, even though at the time, Polish kind of populist, proto-fascistic ideas really appealed to him. But he did it as a lever to make Germany look bad. And in fact, at a certain point, he pulled troops out of Germany and they turned around and actually deployed them into Poland. And it was a way for him to sort of to leverage, to use Poland as a, as a lever against, against the NATO alliance, even though Poland was deeply involved in NATO as well. At one point, he suggested to the Poles that America and Poland have their own alliance have, separate from NATO. Um, a Polish president was kind of interested in the idea. Luckily, the Polish bureaucracy pushed back against them and said, you're crazy to do this. So that didn't, luckily, that was a bird that didn't fly. It is interesting that this alliance has remained pretty solid despite changes politically in both countries. Yeah, exactly. And and people talk about, I mean, there's a huge amount of affinity between both nations. There are millions of Polish Americans. And, and the history between the two nations is a very deep one. I mean, the longest serving foreign officer in the Continental Army in our battle against Britain was a Polish officer. And another Polish officer is believed to have basically saved George Washington's life by managing a good retreat at the Battle of Brandywine. You know, the, the 13th of, of, of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points was a point, basically a sovereign Poland with access to the sea. So, I mean, this these two nations go back a long way. And there's a, there's a huge amount of affinity between the cultures and the peoples. And so that's explains a bit that about, about the nature of, of what ultimately has become a relatively special relationship. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is John Pomfret, whose uh, books include The Beautiful Country and The Middle Kingdom, which won the Arthur Ross Book Award from the, the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, he has been the uh, correspondent and bureau chief for The Washington Post uh, for two decades. And uh, his latest book uh, from Warsaw Would Love, uh, Polish Spies, the CIA, and, and the Forging of an Unlikely Alliance, is published by Henry Holt. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI Org. Where does the current government of Poland stand on the standoff between the United States and Russia, and also Russia's stronger relationship with China? Did Poland have a, a complicated relationship with China as well? So Poland in the 50s, in the 60s, they were obviously socialist brothers, although when the Sino-Soviet split happened, of course, Poland was in the, the Russian camp. But in the modern era, if you will, Poland's relations with China were basically a very strong trade relationship. Poland is part of the whole Belt and Road Initiative with trains carrying Chinese goods to Europe going through Poland. Um, and so that relationship is, was, was relatively, it hadn't remains relatively strong. The, Wait, does, the, the, does the pipeline uh, that would bring uh, uh, gas to Germany that has become part of the controversy now, uh, does that run through Poland? A, a small part of it does, yeah. So 
But the poll, the poll, the polls are very focused on the Ukraine crisis. And in fact, I mean, literally just on the people to people level, there are two million Ukrainian refugees in Poland. Um, and and most, most of them are economic migrants because the Polish economy is a lot stronger than, than the Ukrainian economy. But the polls are very focused on the Ukraine crisis. And if you sort of think about it, what would we be talking about now uh, in, in Europe if Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, and these other countries, like in the Baltics, were not actually members of NATO? What would the security of Europe look like if the Poles hadn't made this amazingly important decision in the 1990s to really push for the expansion of NATO membership? Because, I mean, the George H.W. Bush administration told the Russians that we were not going to move NATO uh, one inch east at, at a certain point. And people in the State Department, but most importantly, people in Poland really push this idea. And what would the world be looking like with Putin in power with a huge army? Would we be seeing troops on the border of Belarus facing Poland and not the Ukraine, the Ukraine, the, the, the Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's 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 important to reflect on this and that Poland's decisions and the use of their intelligence agency as kind of their ace in the hole were really ultimately very important ones that affect today as we speak. The current Polish government is led by the Law and Justice Party, uh, which is a, a right-wing uh, party. Haven't they begun a political campaign against the men who, who forged the American alliance? Exactly. And so the interesting thing is that several of the members of this party were on the kind of on the sidelines of the solidarity movement in the in the 80s. Um, they were not important people, but they were very maximalist, if you will. They wanted a cleansing of Poland after the 1989-1990 changes. They wanted a purge of all the communists. They wanted to basically start at sort of a, almost a year zero as Poland went into the future. And the winner and the people who won, actually, the, the other faction of solidarity said, that's crazy. We have to have a big tent. We have to welcome the ex-communists because we're all here together in Poland. We have to build a society together. And as one prime minister said, draw a thick line between the past and the present. So now these people who are on the sidelines of the revolutionary changes in the 1980s, they come into power and they're like, OK, let's 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 clean house and basically let's punish all of the remaining ex-communists um, for their dude for, for what they've done d- during communism. And so all of these that has to be a ex- lot of people after all. It was there's a lot of people. It's 30 country. Just just a, a former people in the Ministry of Interior. There's some 30,000. And amongst the foreign spies, there were only about a thousand foreign spies. But what they did with them is they basically took their pensions. And these are guys who are now in their you know 60s and 70s, right? I mean this was 30 years ago, right? So <laughs> they're, they're older now, and they've taken their pensions and basically reduced them to below the poverty level. These are the former communists who stayed on after 1990. Who stayed on after 1990. Even the ones who retired, but the ones who stayed on are now being punished. The ones who basically created the alliance with America that Poland is, is still so supportive of are now being punished for their work during communist times. And isn't one yes. of them Gromek Chempinski, yes. who we mentioned earlier, the man yes. who got the six Americans out of Iraq in 1990? Exactly. He had his pension. And I think recently he might have won a court, a court case. It's the, the settlement is yet to go through that will restore his pension. 
Um, and he's fighting on behalf of his of his brothers because basically it was a patriarchal organization. There were no sisters in the intelligence intelligence community to try to get their pensions um, uh, uh, resumed as well. Well, the new government has done more than what, just that. They have a curtailed judicial independence, attacked LGBT rights as well. Yes. So this is a, a very right-wing uh, uh, government. Uh, Poland had a, a terrible history during the, uh, the, era, the Nazi era. Um, do people ever say, hey, we're going to be returning to, thing, to something that we really don't want? We're, yeah, I mean, there's, we're there's a— about? Yeah, there's a there's a there's still I mean, there's a lot of concern. And, and, and interestingly enough, over time, the Law and Justice Party, which had a majority in the parliament, is no longer a majority party. So in order to rule, they need to patch together an alliance with other political parties. And so there is some possibility when the next elections are called that, that the majority will uh, the, the law and justice will no longer be in power. It's still an open question. One of the problems in Poland is that the center and the left can't unite around a character, uh, around, the, around, a, around a person who, who they believe um, can defeat law and justice. And so it's still a very messy political situ- situation where the far right has the capability to, 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 to leverage uh, the weakness of the left and the center in order to stay in power. But you also suggest that the CIA has used its counterparts in Poland selfishly. Yeah. And so, I mean, when this crisis was happening and the Polish uh, government was cutting the pensions of these characters who were really involved in helping the United States. I mean, as one CIA guy uh, uh, officer told me, basically, the Americans exploited Polish intelligence around the world uh, for numerous years. And so when this crisis was happening, the CIA really didn't push the Polish government uh, to to roll back their bans or they're their cutting the pensions. Uh, there was not that much American pressure on the Polish government that this was a mistake. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be punishing these guys who actually created our alliance. Um, and, and so there's there's some amongst amongst these officers, for sure, there's a significant amount of disappointment that the CIA really, at the end of the day, didn't have their back. I suspect that most of our listeners uh, are learning all about this for the first time. Didn't James Pavitt, a former director of the CIA's clandestine service, once say, Poland is the 51st state? Americans have no idea? Yeah, he did indeed. This was during the whole uh, issue with the black site. And, uh, and, and, and we're, we're and, using their, our counterparts in Poland uh, rather selfishly. Totally selfishly. And interestingly enough, the lawyers who were involved with the CIA about the whole issue of enhanced interrogation pushed back at the idea of using the polls to open a black site. Basically, there was concern amongst the lawyers that polling wouldn't go for something like this. And uh, because of their history with the Russians, their history with the Nazis, their history with torture, et cetera, and but but it's but it's significant from my perspective that it was the ex-communists in Poland is the guys who actually were not on the wrong end of the barricades during the 1980s when the solidarity trade movement was being menaced by the Polish communist government. It was those guys who actually made the decision to allow the CIA to open this villa mm-hmm. 
on the grounds of the Polish Intelligence Training Center to do their enhanced interrogation. And they did it partially because they never personally had any really negative experience with communism because the solidarity government was no longer in power and the, commun the ex-communists were back in power. So it's, um, it's an ironic twist. Well, do you miss being uh, stationed abroad? Uh, yeah, I am. I, although managing being stationed abroad under COVID is a complexity that I think would be beyond me at this point <laughs> in my life. So I'm forever amazed that my former colleagues uh, are doing, doing what they do, whether it be in China or in Eastern Europe or elsewhere. John Proverts' uh, latest book is From Warsaw with Love, Polish Spies and the Forging of an Unlikely Alliance, published by Henry Holt. It's been a great pleasure having you on our show today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Leonard, for having me. I really appreciate it. I love the show. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, the Apple Channel, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if, you, if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. We are, money's tight and we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information that you don't usually get anywhere else. Uh, I definitely suspect you didn't. You learned a whole bunch of new things from today's conversation. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing from Warsaw with Love, Polish Spies, the CIA, and the Forging of an Unlikely Alliance. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content and to pay for our broadcast tower. Uh, whether you make a one-time contribution or become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, the important thing is that you step up and show your support for Leonard Lopez at Large and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. Because, you know, WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants. And that allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by making that call to 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when Gal Beckerman will discuss his new book, The Quiet Before, on the unexpected origins of radical ideas.